Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to January Atoms. We'll start with human rights, children's rights specifically. It wasn't until the early 1800s that children's rights were societally acknowledged with the enactment of laws preventing child labour. The next big milestone was the creation by the League of Nations of a committee for the protection of children. Soon after followed the Geneva Declaration, the first international treaty on children's rights, and some decades later, in 1953, UNICEF was founded and gathered momentum on the basis of a yours, a treponemal eradication campaign. Subsequently, the Declaration on the Rights of Children in 1959 was introduced, followed by the most widely cited and best known article of them all, the 1989 Convention. So we've come some way, but as the pieces in this month's issue illustrate, we have much further to go. We'll start, however, with folic acid, an issue which very few areas have as complex a story. The 1991 Medical Research Council trial showed convincingly the supplementation reduces the incidence of neural tube defects. Uptake is patchy, unlike some 80 other countries in which fortification of flour is recommended is not yet mandatory in the UK. In a dissection of the issues around the recent government public consultation on the issue, Nick Walls, Joan Morris and Colin Blakemore help you make your own minds up. Children's rights. One of the core tenets of democracy is the principle of the right to vote, the right indeed to influence one's own future. However, 25% of the population in the UK, the children, are denied this. With this premise, Nina Modi argues a compelling case for allowing every parent a vote on behalf of each of their children. When one considers that society already confers parents with the right to raise children in their own image and act in their best interests, then is this really such a quantum leap? Read this piece and listen to the associated Spotlight podcast. Global health, conflict and primary care. Up to 400 million, yes, 400 million children are estimated to live in conflict zones and many more in areas so remote that access to primary health care is near impossible. Cognizant of this disparity, the Afghan Ministry of Public Health introduced mobile health teams in the early 2000s to provide within-village care for a couple of days every two months or so. Coverage has gradually increased, but with only sparse quantification of the associated effect size. In order to address this in a cluster observational analysis, comparing markers of coverage of outcomes between districts with mobile health team provision and those without, Edmund and colleagues assessed levels of antenatal and postnatal care, as well as childhood vaccination. They found significantly higher proportions of measles coverage in those areas with mobile health teams compared to those without, with levels of 73.8% and 57.3% respectively, and antenatal care provision, with 83.6% of women having at least one antenatal clinic in the mobile team areas as compared to 61% in those without. Children's rights again, sexual health. Adolescent sexual and reproductive health and rights show marked inter-country differences in provision. Michaud's study of policy in 31 European countries, which included the EU countries plus Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, explored them as part of the EU-funded models appraisal. 
they found that 10 countries of these have not yet developed any formal policy or recommendation that guarantee the respect of confidentiality and the possibility of consulting a physician without parental knowledge. Access to emergency contraception and information regarding pregnancy, including testing, is easy in most countries, but all contraception is delivered free of charge in only 10 countries. And only seven countries can adolescents with certainty have a termination without their children knowing. Global health, severe malnutrition. Malnutrition underpins 50% of child deaths worldwide. And despite guidance, for example, the WHO 10 steps, identification, which is of course the prerequisite first step and management are inconsistent. To improve this, the University of Southampton and the International Malnutrition Task Force, the International Union of Nutritional Sciences, recently developed an e-learning course called Caring for Infants and Young Children with Severe Malnutrition, a modular training program. Choi compared identification rates of children with SAM, quality of care and case fatality rate before and for a year after course introduction in Ghana, Guatemala and El Salvador. There were significant improvements after training in the identification of SAM. More children had the requisite anthropometric data, more were correctly diagnosed, and most tellingly, a fall in case fatality was noticed. Children's Rights, Part 3. Glover Williams' account of the practice of breast ironing is essential reading. Listed as one of the five UN underreported crimes relating to gender-based violence, it's estimated to affect at least a thousand women and girls in West African communities across the UK. Though given the secrecy around it, this is almost certainly an underestimate. It involves the ironing, massaging, flattening or pounding down pubescent girls' breasts at Tilaki, using tools such as heated stones or binders over time to delay or stop their development. The damage, physical, social and psychological, is for many permanent. The UN estimates that 3.8 million girls worldwide are affected. Most UK practice reported in population pockets. Crown prosecution service prison sentence even if the victim is said to have consented. But how many abused girls are being missed? I hope you enjoy this issue. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the website adc.bmj.com. Bye for now.